beginning in verse 1. And Lord willing, we're going to make it all the way through verse 44 this morning. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary, and her sister Martha. So, I hope you guys are awake because we're going to be here for a couple hours, 44 verses. Please forgive me. I'm going to ask for your forgiveness ahead of time. As you know, most of us, when we went to bed last night, we already lost an hour of sleep. So, it's going to be tough staying awake this morning. So I will try to speak loudly from time to time. Bethany is one of Jesus' favorite places to be. Gospel accounts, we, we read of him being here many times. In Luke's Gospel, we read that Jesus had dinner at the home of Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. And it's, that's the account of where Martha's busy preparing the dinner and Mary, her sister, is sitting at the feet of Jesus. Then we read about six days prior to the Passover, Jesus has dinner there again. Martha must be an incredible cook because Jesus is always at their house having dinner. And I'm certain he's not getting noodle-free lasagna there. But it's... But it's, sorry, Judy, I had to throw that in there. I'd say it's the jersey, I mean, but it's really just a sin that's in me. And it's during this dinner that Mary anoints the feet of Jesus with the pure nard, which is very expensive, and then dries them, dries his feet with her hair. You guys remember that account? As a matter of fact, we're going to read about that in the next chapter. And then in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's gospel, it tells of, Jesus being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, and a woman comes in and anoints his head with very expensive oil in that account. And then we read about Jesus riding the donkey into Jerusalem, and then how he cleanses the temple, and then we read that he lodged in Bethany after that. So, and then here, of course, in John chapter 11, we have the account of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus. He's at the home of Martha and Mary again. So, we see that from Scripture that he spends a lot of time in Bethany. And we also know that one of those reasons is that he has come to love Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, residents of this community. But there may be another reason why he liked this place so much. It is believed that the Essenes had a colony there, that they had set this place up as a, a place where the sick, including lepers, and the destitute, the very poor, would be taken care of here. The Essenes, history tells us, were very charitable people, and they, they loved to help the sick and the poor. In fact, the name Bethany means house of the poor or house of misery. Now, we're not sure if the, the town had that name beforehand or if the town was given that name because of the poor that lived there and because of those who were suffering there. But it certainly gives new meaning to the words of Jesus when he says, for you have the poor with you always, but me you do not have always, Matthew 26, 11. Now he said these words while he was having dinner at Simon the leper's house, which is in Bethany. Now Simon the leper may very well have been one of those lepers from the colony whom Jesus healed. And so as he spoke those words, you will have the poor with you always, he's right in the midst of the very poor, and the very sick. Perhaps another reason why Jesus loved this place so much is because he saw the people there who were like this. 
and he had compassion on them. I mean, these were the people that Jesus loved to be around the most, right? People who knew that they needed a physician, knew that they weren't righteous like the Pharisees were, but were in need of a physician to be healed spiritually more than anything else. It wasn't their physical healing that was that important, but their spiritual healing. So maybe that's why Jesus loved this place so much. And we know that he certainly loved it because his friends Martha, Mary, and Lazarus lived here. Now there's a lot of speculation about this family as well. And so I just want to make some observations here by what we can read in the text. There's no mention of a mother or father here, so it's very possible that they're orphans. There's no mention of a spouse, which is strange because Jewish women at that time usually married around 16 years of age. Now some have suggested that they were under the age of, maybe Martha and Mary hadn't reached the age of marriage yet, but I, I don't think that's the case. It's also possible that Martha and Mary may have chosen for some other reason not to marry. It's possible that the reason they didn't marry is because they had dedicated their lives to helping the people here in Bethany. But that's just speculation. That's just my interpretation of that. Um, and it's likely that Martha is the oldest of the three because she seems to be the voice of the family. And Lazarus, because of his lack of involvement, his lack of voice, seems to be the youngest. And if he is the youngest, perhaps that's the reason why his sisters are so grieved over his death. So these observations are drawn just from information we have, both in history and, and in the scriptures. And they're just that. They're observations. They're speculation. And, and sometimes when we fill in the blanks like that, it helps give us a little bit better picture of what we're dealing with, of what Jesus was dealing with. And as long as we as long as we say that this is what we think, that this is speculation, that this is just an observation, as opposed to saying this is what really happened, then we know that it's speculation, right? We, we know that we're just adding now, and it's not scriptural, but just trying to get a flavor, an idea of what Jesus was dealing with. So Jesus is not in Bethany at this time. He's in the area, if you remember from last week, in the area where John the Baptist first started baptizing which is about 20 miles or more away from Bethany. As Jesus is there, Lazarus gets very sick, and the sisters send for the only one that they know who can heal him. It was that Mary, who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick, therefore the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Now, the event that John records here, Mary, who anointed Jesus' feet and dried them with her hair, doesn't happen, as I said, till the next chapter. So we have to remember that the gospel accounts were all written after these events occurred. You all know that, right? They weren't eyewitness accounts. They weren't written down as they happened. They were written after the fact. So by the time John writes this particular account, this account of Mary wiping the feet of Jesus with her hair, anointing his feet with her with oil, is very well known in the area, so John simply uses that to help identify who he's referring to. So the readers who read this letter will know who he's speaking of. And so the sisters send Jesus a message that the one whom he loves, Lazarus, is sick. And that tells you that Lazarus had a special place in Jesus' heart. Now, in my mind, that's just another argument for the fact that Lazarus may have been very young at this time. 
So when Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, verse 4, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that the, he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. The messenger that the sisters dispatched to Jesus, if he didn't stop along the way, it would have taken him, if he walked at a comfortable pace, it would have taken him about a day, about 12 hours, to walk that far, to walk that distance. And he tells Jesus that the sisters have sent for him because Lazarus is sick. And they fear that this sickness that Lazarus has will lead to his death. Now, pay very atten close attention to what Jesus says to the message, messenger. He says, this sickness is not unto death. Now, Jesus doesn't promise that he'll be healed. Jesus doesn't promise that he won't die. Because, listen, Jesus already knows that Lazarus has already died. And we're going to pick up that language here in a, in a few verses. Jesus doesn't promise that we won't get sick. Jesus doesn't promise that we won't die. He promises that the sickness and death that we face in this world isn't the final word. When Jesus said, I have said these things to you that in me you will have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. What he was saying is that in this world, we will experience sickness, we will experience sorrow, we will experience suffering, and we will experience death. But sickness, sorrow, suffering, and death is not the final word. Jesus is the final word, and in him is life, and he's overcome the world amen in him is a promise of a place where there is no more suffering where there is no more sorrow where there is no more pain no more sickness or death now jesus loved this family and that's evident by the amount of time that he spent here with them and again just an observation just a speculation but they all may have been relatively young and, and maybe they're living in this home, well, they are living in this home by themselves without their parents, and maybe that's why Jesus has developed such an affinity towards them. So how does Jesus show that love that he has for this family? He stays two more days where he is. doesn't seem very loving, does it? What if you got the news that your loved one was dying? You're on a plane or, or in your car on your way there right away, right? Jesus stays two more days. To us, not a very loving thing to do, but actually it is. Because God the Father, number one, will be glorified by this. Jesus is God in the flesh. So when we see Jesus act in the scriptures, when we, hear, when we read his words, we're seeing God in action. We're reading the words of God. The Bible that we have is God in quotes. So when he heals the sick, when he feeds the poor, we see the heart of God for all mankind. And when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, as we go through this scripture here, we see the power of God to restore life, and all of that brings glory to God. But it also shows Martha and Mary that the most important thing in this life isn't this life. Because the life that we have here on this earth, the Bible tells us is what? but a vapor. Scripture tells us it's like grass that withers and dies. It's here today and gone tomorrow. 
What is important, what is most important, is knowing that we have eternal life, that eternal life never withers or fades. It is everlasting. It is forever. You know, imagine being on the ocean, the vast ocean in a sailboat, and you reach down and just scoop up a handful of water. And as that water trickles through your fingers, it's a reminder of man's life here on this earth. It's here for a very brief time, and then it's gone. It just kind of trickles through our fingers, doesn't it? I, I have reached the ripe over old age of 60, and I still can't believe I got here. You know, it seems like only yesterday that I was 20, 30, right? 60's the new 40, so it's okay. But the life that God gives is like the living water that Jesus describes, right? It's so vast that it has no end. And once we reach out and take it, it'll never run out. It can never be exhausted because it is eternal. So there's nothing more loving that any of us could ever do than to tell someone the importance of eternal life compared to the fading frailty and finality of this life. Because that's all everyone, anyone really, anyone who doesn't know Christ, all they know is that this life is fading away. That this life comes to an end. Many of them have never heard or don't, or have never been told, and some of them don't want to hear it, but there is life beyond the grave. There is an eternal life that can be spent with Jesus Christ. And that is the most loving thing that we can do for them, is to tell them, about Jesus Christ and about the eternal life that he offers. Then after he said to the disciples, after, after this he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews have sought to stone you and you are going there again? Jesus answered, are there not twelve hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. So you have to understand where the disciples are coming from, right? Jesus, we just left that place. And when we left, we had to get out of there in a hurry because the religious leaders were looking to stone you. And you want to go back there? They're a little nervous. They're a little frightened. Wouldn't you be? Jesus wants to go back to Bethany. He wants to go back and comfort his friends, Martha and Mary. And so he uses the analogy of being 12, of there being 12 hours in the day. And he uses it for two reasons. First, he uses it to calm the fears of his disciples. And, of course, Jesus is dividing the day in half. You know, he's, he's not talking about dawn and dusk, and he's just dividing the day in half. The first 12 hours are daylight. The next 12 hours are night. And he uses it as a teachable moment because you have to consider what just transpired, right? The messenger just arrived to tell Jesus that Lazarus was sick and that the sisters had sent for him. He walked how far? See if you're paying attention. 20 miles. Took about how long? 12 hours, about a day. It's funny, I, a friend posted a sign the other day. It was about uh, hiking on a trail. And the trail was five miles in, and then you had to walk five miles out, so it was 10 miles. So five miles in took about three hours, they calculated. So if you walked the whole thing in and out, it was six miles. And, and the reason it was funny is because my other friend thought it was a trail that had no end. You just went five miles, and that was it. You were stuck. He never read the rest of the sign. Anyway, it took six hours, right? 
that was only 10 miles so if you double that it's 12 hours so I thought that was pretty cool that it that it, uh, it really is about 12 hours to walk that distance he wouldn't have made that trip at night he didn't make the trip there at night and he was going to make the trip back at night because there's very little light in the desert right and so as you're walking around stumbling around in the darkness you could stumble into a ravine you could stumble in, off a cliff you could just fall on a rock or step on a rattlesnake. There are a lot of dangers at night, so he would never have made that trip at night. And Jesus uses this practical situation, like the messenger's trip, to inform, to inform him of Lazarus' sicknesses and the disciples' fear of going back to Bethany, which, by the way, is only two miles outside of Jerusalem. So that kind of tells you why they were a little fearful, to teach a spiritual lesson. And here's the lesson. While we're on this earth and we're filled with the light of God, we can go anywhere and do anything the Father has called us to do without fear. You guys get that? While we are on this earth and filled with the light of Jesus Christ and doing the will of our Father, we can go anywhere and do anything that he's called us to do without fear. Only those who walk in darkness need to fear the darkness. Those who walk in the light have no fear of the darkness because we have no fear of death. Death for a believer is but a shadow. It has lost its sting. And so Jesus uses these teachable moments we see in Scripture all the time, doesn't he? And we talked about this at men's group yesterday. He used the events and the situations all around him to teach a spiritual truth. And we could do the same thing. We need to pray that we're sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit, that these teachable moments that are presented to us throughout the day, that we use them to teach our children, to teach our spouses, to teach our families about the truth of our Father in Heaven. These moments exist every day of our lives. We just don't see them because we're focused on other things. These things he said, and after that he said to them, our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought that he was sleeping. And about taking rest and sleep, then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. Then Thomas, who was called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Let us go with Jesus, that if Jesus is killed, if Jesus is stoned to death, that we will die with him. Now, this for me is a very comforting picture that Jesus paints. Because as violent and as troubling as death can be, Jesus refers to it simply as sleep. When you die, you simply fall asleep. That should help you go to sleep tonight. In fact, in the Greek, the word cemetery means the sleep of death or the sleeping place. Peter Marshall, when he was the chaplain in the United States Senate, he told of a boy of 12 who knew that he was dying. The boy asked his father, what is it like to die? His father said to him, son, do you remember when you were little? how you used to come and sit on my lap in the big chair in the living room. I would tell you a story, read you a book, or sing you a song, and you would go to sleep in my arms. And when you woke up, you were in your own bed. 
That is the way death is. When you wake, you're not where you were. You were in a place of security, of safety, and beauty, and rest. Paul referred to death as sleep. Brothers and sisters, we do not want to, you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Daniel the prophet wrote, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So the word of God tells us that death is like falling asleep. And when we close our eyes on this earth for the last time, we will open them in the safety and security of heaven, gazing upon the face of our Lord and Savior. There's no better place, no safer place to be than there. And Jesus tells his disciples that he's actually glad that Lazarus is dead. He says, I'm glad for your sake that he's gone. Jesus knows that the disciples are going to see the power of God at work and that it will strengthen and confirm their faith. Jesus also knows that many will come to believe in him because of the miracle that they are all about to witness. And Jesus knows that the raising of Lazarus from the dead will serve as an illustration for all of us of the resurrection. They're going to see firsthand, and, and, and as we read this passage of Scripture, we're going to see firsthand that death is not the inescapable outcome of life. Resurrection to eternal life, for those who believe, is the promised outcome of what happens after death. Amen? Life on this earth is temporary. Death in the grave is temporary. Eternal life is forever. Now, bolstered by the words of Jesus, let's go to him. The disciples, especially Thomas, who apparently has a twin, says, let's go with him, that we may die with him, meaning with Jesus. Do you get the feeling that I get when I read this, that this is kind of like, let's just go out in a blaze of glory next to our, 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 our Lord? We're going to go with him. We're going to stay with him to the bitter end. Do you get that sense when you, when you read those words? And we know that the reality of that is very different, don't we? Because when Jesus faces the end of his ministry here on earth, when he's arrested and he's tried and he's taken to the cross, they all flee except for John. Peter, who said he'd stay with him right to the end, right, that he'd die for him, denies him three times. And, and I think at that point, I don't think we know, that they were expecting a much different Messiah, weren't they? They were expecting the Messiah to take back the temple from the the corrupt religious leaders. They were expecting the Messiah to deliver them out of the hand of the Roman oppressors. And, and when he's arrested and he's put on trial and he's taken to the cross, they didn't know what to think at that point. They were confused. And we see that in the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, right? They're walking and they're talking and they're discussing this and they're, they're beside themselves because their Messiah, the one they believed that the Messiah was just put to death and they don't know what to think. But of course, Jesus is walking right along with them even though Jesus told them time and time and time again that he would go to Jerusalem, that he would be arrested, that he would be beaten and tried and put to death, they still didn't get it. We can't understand that, can we? We don't get that. We don't understand how they could be so hard-headed. But listen, like the death of Lazarus, it was good for their sake to go through that time of confusion because when they saw Jesus, who was dead, 
alive, it cemented in them the truth that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Son of God. And from that moment on, there was nothing that could happen to them on this earth, except, of course, for their own death, that would keep them from spreading the gospel message. Nothing. There was nothing or no one that could ever persuade them again to doubt or be confused about who Jesus was. They continued to do the ministry that Jesus had left behind with a renewed sense of purpose once they saw Jesus, who was dead, alive again. They continued the work of the Father in heaven here on this earth, and that nothing from that moment on would stop them or stop that work from being accomplished. Jesus said even the gates of hell would not prevail against that. And I think in a lot of ways the disciples, or we are just like the disciples, right? We have great intentions, all of us. Lord, I'll follow you anywhere. Lord, I'll do whatever it takes. I'll do, go wherever you want me to go. Do whatever you want me to do. And when the moment of truth comes, when the Lord says, go to Zimbabwe, go to hottest place on earth, right? The most dangerous place on earth. Go to Iraq. Go to Afghanistan. We back down a little bit. We said, Lord, you didn't hear me right. He said, I'd go to Hawaii for you. I'd go to any place. I'd go anywhere but there. Because we think this is harder than we expected it to be. I didn't expect this. We fear the consequences. But then something happens in our lives and the prayer is answered or, or we get a confirmation that reaffirms our faith. And we continue on with a new sense of purpose because we know that only Jesus has the words of life. We know that only Jesus is the resurrection and the life. We know that Jesus is the living water, that he's the good shepherd, that he's the bread of life, that he is life itself. And we follow him because he is the way of life. And so we continue on with a new sense of purpose. You know, one thing I've learned in this walk with Jesus is there are times when we get confused. There are times when we doubt. And that Jesus knows that about us. And Jesus sees that in us. And Jesus provides something or uses someone to renew and refresh us, to renew our sense of purpose, to help us continue on and persevere in the Lord. So in that sense, Jesus is our biggest encourager. He's our greatest supporter. He always provides that way for us when we're down when we're thinking, Lord, I can't go another step. I can't do this anymore, Lord. He always shows us. He always provides that way for us to know that we can continue on. He always renews that purpose in us. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away, and many of the Jews had joined the woman around Martha and Mary to confront them concerning their brother. So as I said, Bethany's only about two miles outside Jerusalem, a very short walk. And Jesus had been out over 20 miles away where John had first started baptizing. So he's about a day's journey away. So the messenger took the messenger a day to get there. Jesus stayed two days, took him a day to walk back. So Lazarus is already in the tomb for days. Now, by now, the, the death of Lazarus has spread through the community and the surrounding area. Many came to sit shiva with Martha and Mary. I used to think that was sitting and shivering, but it's sitting shiva. Sitting shiva simply means to sit seven days and mourn over the lost one. You're mourning with the family. 
Sitting Shiva has actually been around since the days of Job, maybe before, when Job's friends came and sat with him. How many days? Seven days. Joseph grieved for his father Jacob for seven days. Now, they, the practice used to be, I don't know if it still is, Judy, but the practice used to be they would sit on a very low stool or even a box, and so the, the idea was that as people came to pay their condolences, um, being that low down symbolized the fact that you were brought low by the death of your loved one. Lazarus has been dead four days now, so the grieving process, sitting Shiva, is already in full swing. It's well underway when Jesus arrives. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, but Mary was sitting in the house. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know whatever you ask of God, he will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. So Martha runs out to meet Jesus. Her friends are there to comfort her in this time of grief. But listen, nothing, nothing can compare to the peace and comfort that comes from our Lord when we're going through a time of sorrow and grief. The Bible teaches us that the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. Psalm 30, 34, 18. And Martha says to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would have been healed. My brother would not have died. Now, this isn't a rebuke of Jesus because he delayed coming. Martha knows how much Jesus loved Lazarus, but she also knows that Jesus has the power to heal the sick. So she says, while my brother was sick, I know you could have healed him, is what she's really saying. Remember, Lazarus had to, because he's dead now four days in the tomb, and it took a day to get there, it took Jesus two days to get back, and it took the messenger another day, it was... You're looking at four days, so Lazarus had to have died shortly after the messenger left to tell Jesus. He was already dead. So Jesus could not have possibly have gotten there in time to heal him while he was still sick. He was still dead. And Mary says, I know that anything you ask of the Father, he will give you. So had Lazarus still, had you been here while he was sick, you would have, been, you would have healed him. And he, this would never have happened. He would not have died. But this sickness has led to death, and now it is too late. And that's confirmed by the fact that she's, when Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again, Mary says, or Martha says rather, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Martha isn't thinking, it isn't crossing her mind that her brother could be raised right then and there. She's already come to terms with the fact that her brother's dead, and she won't see him again until the resurrection in the last day. But she knows that had Jesus gotten there before he died, that he would have healed him, but in her mind, it's too late for that. So Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Jesus holds the key to life and death. Jesus is in control. If we die physically, and listen, the, they did a recent survey, and, and the stats are still the same, there is a 100% death rate among people who live. 
If you believe in him, however, and die physically, you will live for all eternity, or all eternity spiritually. Right? Jesus is speaking in this sense of eternity. Because we all will, no matter what you believe or don't believe, all of us will die one day. And all who die one day will be resurrected. Although many do not believe that. Many in the world believe that when you die, you just fall asleep and you never wake again. That they believe when they close their eyes on this earth for the last time, they will never have another conscious thought ever. And that's why many live the way they do. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you will die, right? So you can live your life however you want, because when you die, you just die. It's over with. Collect as many toys now as you can. Have as good a time now as you can, because when this is over, it's over. That's a false belief, isn't it? When they close their eyes for the last time here on this earth, they will one day be awakened, and the scene that they will see around them will be a scene of judgment. They're going to stand before the God whom they did not believe in and account to him for their unbelief. The books are going to be open, and they're going to find out, much to their horror, that their names are not written in the book of life. And they're going to be sentenced to an eternity separated from God, from his goodness and his light. Daniel the prophet said, speaking the words of God, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. For those who do believe, although one day, again, we will all die, when we open our eyes, after our physical death, we will find ourselves in heaven with God for all eternity. And I want you to please take careful note of what the criteria of eternal life with Christ in heaven is. Believe. Believe. Believe in Jesus Christ and you will have eternal life. Death for the believer isn't the end of life. It is the beginning of a new life spent with Christ for all eternity. Lazarus was a believer. And Jesus confronts his sister by, comforts his sister rather by saying, even though he's dead physically... Death is only a temporary condition for the believer. And that brings amazing comfort to a believer, doesn't it? To know that when another believer dies, there's pain. There's always pain because of the separation. But that separation in and of itself is temporary, that we will see them again and spend all eternity with them. Because we believe. Because we believe in the resurrection and the life. Because we believe in Christ Jesus Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown in perish is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown in a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. This body, this tent that we all live in, is not, isn't made to last forever. Many of you see that now. It's already starting to fall apart. It's already breaking down. Parts are falling off, sputting and sputtering. Sometimes it fails to start right away in the mornings. Lazarus' body had become sick. It gave out. And Jesus is about to show the world that death has no hold on believers. He's about to show all who believe death is temporary, but life with him is eternal. And when she said these things, she went away and secretly called Mary, her sister, saying, The teacher has come and is calling for you. 
As soon as she heard that, she rose quickly and came to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the town, but was in the place where Martha met him. Then Jesus, who were with her, then those, then the Jews, rather, who were with her in the house and comforting her, when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, followed her, saying, She is going to the tomb to weep there. Then when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? And they said, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. And the Jews said, See how he loved him? And some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? So Jesus comforts Martha. And she goes out and he calls for Mary. And he hasn't even entered the town yet. And he's already ministering to the sisters of Lazarus. Many of the friends have already gathered to mourn with Martha and Mary over Lazarus. And they say, even they see this, right? This man who opened the eyes of a man born blind, surely if he had been here, he could have opened, he could have healed Lazarus. Mary says the same thing her sister Martha said. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And I want you to think about those words for a moment. They're familiar, aren't they? Many of us have said those very same words. Lord, if you had been here. Lord, you could have stopped this. Lord, you could have healed them. You've healed others, Lord. You've intervened before. Why not now? Why not in this situation? Why not me, Lord? Lord knows I've, I've said those words myself. Some have even walked away from the faith because they struggle with the why and the if of death. But Jesus' response gives us some insight to why and if. Jesus asked them first where they've laid him. Where's his body? And then the next insight we get is that Jesus weeps. Now Jesus weeps over our losses. He mourns with us. He feels our pain. He feels our sorrow. God, the Bible tells us, keeps our tears in a bottle. Our pain and sorrow mean something to God. He's not unfeeling. He loves us. He hurts when we hurt. But I think what Jesus does next really answers the question for all of us. Life on this earth isn't what's important. Yes, it's important to us. People are important to us. And and certainly how we live our life on this earth is important. But life itself is not the most important thing, is it? I mean, when you really get down to it, our life is not the most important thing. And the problem for many of us is that we've, we've learned to hold on so tightly to this life that when it's taken from us, it has to be ripped out of our clenched fist. And that hurts, doesn't it? That hurts. We focus so much on the temporal that we have to always be reminded of the eternal. Yes, Lazarus was dead. Yes, if Jesus had been there, he would have healed him. But that's not the point of all of this. It's not the point that Jesus could have healed him. It's not even the point that Lazarus is dead. The point to all of this is that those who die in Christ will live again. To never die. To live in all eternity. So no matter how or when we die, we're going to be resurrected and live forever. That is the most important thing, isn't it? 
It's not so important to think or to say, Lord, if only. But Lord, thank you that you are the only way, that you are the only truth, that you are the only life, that you are eternal life, that you are the resurrection and the life. And we are grateful and we praise you, Lord, for who you are and what you've done. Then Jesus, again groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he has been dead four days. Lazarus is dead four days. There can be no mistake about this. The natural process of decomposition has already began. Lazarus is dead. Lazarus isn't sleeping. He's gone. We don't know how he died. Sickness, accident, drive-by, we just don't know. Just trying to see if you guys are awake. Some of you still are. But we know why. We do know the why. When Adam and Eve rebelled against God in the garden, sin and death entered into the world, didn't it? So disease, sickness, pain, death, sorrow, all of that is direct result of the original sin, of that sin. So we can say that this is the result of sin and death in the world that Lazarus is dead. It doesn't matter how he died. It's a result of sin and death being in the world. And I believe Jesus is using the death of his friend to teach again, use it as a teachable moment to teach a spiritual truth. Sin, you can say, has a stench to it, doesn't it? It stinks. Sin brought about death. Death is a process that, or sin rather, is a process that slowly eats away the soul of a man. It rots us from the inside out. So death, we could say, truly does have a stench. It truly does stink. But Jesus has the answer. Jesus said to her, Didn't I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father... I thank you that you have heard me, and I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Now when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to him, Loose him and let him go. I'm not quite sure if you knew this or not. This is just, um, I'm going to tell you this for free. It's not going to cost you anything. It's a little information. But there were three other people in the tomb with Lazarus. Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth, right? Don't blame me for that joke. I just, I stole it from Nancy. I stole it from Nancy. Blame Nancy for that joke. Oh, you just realized it was a joke, huh? You thought I was serious? That's how bad a joke is when nobody laughs. They don't get. So Jesus tells them to loose him and set him free because Lazarus would have been bound head to toe in linen, grave clothes. As they unwrap him, the first face that he would have seen would have been the face of his Savior, Jesus Christ. Now picture for us the spiritual truth here. Sin binds us. Sin has taken many of us further than we wanted to go, kept us longer than we wanted to stay, and cost us more than we were willing to pay. Sin has kept us bound, many of us. Had kept us bound before we knew Jesus Christ. 
there was a point in our lives, in many of our lives, we were, we were under bondage, under the bondage of sin. But just as Jesus set Lazarus free, he has set us free from the bondage of sin and death. Amen? Jesus said earlier to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Lazarus came forth from the tomb very much alive because he had been given new life by Jesus Christ. And that's what Jesus has done for all of us who believe. He's given all of us a new life in him. We're saved by his grace through our faith. Jesus asked Martha, do you believe? It was the faith of Lazarus and the grace of Jesus Christ that raised Lazarus from the dead. It is our faith in Jesus Christ and his grace toward us that will one day raise us from the dead. This whole account of Lazarus being raised from the dead was done, Jesus said, for the sake of his disciples. Are you his disciples? It is done for our sake as well. Because we are his disciples. And Jesus used the death of his friend to show us that he truly has the power to take life up that has been laid down. He uses the death of Lazarus, whom he loved, to show that all who die in his love will one day be raised and will see the face of our Messiah. And will hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. And the application for us in this is that while there's still life, while we still walk this earth with the light of Christ in us, that we are to tell others about the resurrection and the life. That there is one, only one, no, there is only one, there is no other person, no other way except through him that we get to heaven. There's no other way except through him that we come to God the Father. And that when we say, Lord, if only, we should always remember that he did. He died so that all who believe in him could have life and have it eternally. That all who believe in him, no matter whether we're sick, and that sickness leads to death, that all who believe in him will one day be healed as we gaze upon his face. That life on this earth, that healing on this earth isn't the most important thing. Yes, it's important, but it's not the most important thing. Having the promise of eternal life in Christ, having the promise of the resurrection from the dead is the most important thing. Lord, if only. He did. He did. Lord, if only you would give your life so that we could have eternal life. He did. Lord, if only you would take my sin upon yourself so that I don't have to suffer the wrath of God for my sin if only Lord he did isn't that the most important thing so before we and we listen we're all human we tend to say that Lord if only before we say those words again let us remind ourselves that he did he did it's not Lord if only he's already done it he's already done it we need to get our eyes off of the temporal off of the things around us and fix them firmly on him. Yes, there's pain. Yes, there's suffering. Yes, there's sickness and sorrow and death. And yes, we grieve over the loss of our loved ones. And we will grieve over that loss as long as we have breath in our lungs. But we rejoice in the knowledge that that is not the end. That is not the final answer. We rejoice in the fact that Jesus is the final answer. And that we will one day rise again just as they are now, and spend all eternity 
in heaven with them and with our Savior. Amen? Please stand.